BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. I want to start off with Spotify. You may have heard the news. Spotify had a another layoff, the third of the year. Uh, they're going to cut down, what is it, 17% of their staff. Uh, you know, I think it was like 1,500 people going to lose their jobs. Uh, but that's not the that's not the story, because uh, look, you know, anytime corporate America can kick people to the curb, oh boy, do they! The story is again, uh, rich people getting richer, working people getting screwed. So you have the third round of layoffs this year, you know, to make the company more profitable, uh, while they're not paying their artists any money, while they're screwing the the people who actually make the content over. Uh, they cut off their podcast division. They've done all kinds of stuff uh, to make sure that, well, their their pockets are lined. The story for me is uh, the chief financial officer, a guy named Paul Vogel, uh, who was you know the head of laying all these people off. Evidently, he's going to lose his job too, but in March of next year, but not before he cashed in. million of his stock. Because guess what happened? They announced the layoff on Monday. Tuesday, the stock goes through the roof. And, well, the CFO sells, cashes cashes in. Seems like a very nice little windfall. A very nice little bit of golden parachute. And the thing, again, that bothers me is we're in this place where the wealthy get wealthier. uh, the, 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 The CEOs, the executives, they're all well taken care of. But it's the working people, again, who get screwed. Uh, now, you may remember about a week ago, we had a guest on talking about Yellow Freight. Uh, they were the third largest trucking company in the country. Went belly up. Uh, the C- CEO and the, the executive said, screw it. Uh, we think we're worth more in pieces than we are operational. And, well, now they're doing that. We had a guest on talking about, hey, we want to buy up the remnants of the company. We, we want to restart it. We want to get those those 30,000 employees back to work. We want to get those union members back on the job, moving freight, earning good wages, having good benefits, pension, health care, you know, that stuff. Well, on Thursday, their offer, the people who wanted to restart this company and bring it out of the, out of the grave, well, their offer was rejected. 
and it was rejected because, well, they're 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 how did the Wall Street Journal put it uh, that their projections were or uh, you know like over overestimated and their costs were underestimated. Basically, any reason to not any reason to not accept the offer. And what you ended up having was a situation where they went and they sold off uh, on Thursday or accepted bids on Thursday of non-union companies who were able to, like vultures, pick over the carcass of what was once, uh, well, the one of the leading carriers in the country. And it's going to get, I think, like $1.8, $1.9 billion dollars uh, which should be divided up nicely amongst the the top creditors. And, you know, for me, this is one of these moments where you go, yeah, all this money is going to be coming in and it's going to go out to to whom? Uh, there will be a list of creditors that, that have to be paid. And, you know, I had someone ask me recently, you know, if if the workers will get their vacation pay because they're they're part of this. All of the things that they lost, including their job, that's on the table. And I said, well, the sad reality is, is it depends on where in the pecking order you fall. Uh, as working people, we generally fall to the bottom. The positive here is that the Teamsters Union represented these workers and they will be in court fighting for the interests of workers and the pension payments that this company has you know, basically gotten away with not paying for, dec- for over a decade. But it got me to thinking, again, that we're in this moment where... And it's been this way for quite some time. Look, yellow is not special. Uh, They're just going to be another in the graveyard of corporations that close their doors, liquidated, and screwed over working people. There's nothing special here. This is just another in a long line of opportunities for corporate America to, well, line their pockets. And for good family-sustaining jobs to go away. And for me, this is one of these these opportunities to say, look, there can be, there should be, there should be a better way. And when we come back, I'm going to have Sarah Riggs Amico back on the program talking about their latest offer since the first one was rejected. Their latest offer to try, well, to try and fire those, those trucks back up, get them back on the road and get those workers behind the wheel and loading the trucks and, and all of that. And fighting for that little piece of the American dream. We're gonna take a quick break, right back with Sarah Riggs Amico. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the day streetcar workers in Kansas City walked off the job. It was the third strike since August 1917. Workers had previously struck for union recognition and joined the city general strike that spring. By summer, the city was so desperate for wartime labor, the transit company began hiring women. Though women faced initial opposition, by fall, the union demanded they receive equal pay for equal work. The company had been paying them $15 less a month than their male co-workers. The Amalgamated filed charges with the National War Labor Board, demanding a general wage increase and equal wages for women. 
The board quickly ruled in the union's favor, but Kansas City Railway refused to abide by the decision. And on this day, 2,675 men and 127 women walked off the job demanding the company honor the board's ruling. Instead, the company hired scabs. In the rush to restore service, the company failed to properly train the scab drivers and a number of streetcar crashes reduced the transit company's fleet by more than 300 cars. According to Maureen Wiener-Greenwald, author of Women, War and Work, the company alleged in the press that the strike was an attack against the entire community. On the Missouri side, state militia guarded the strike breakers while U.S. Marshals guarded rail tracks on the Kansas side. By April 1919, a federal grand jury indicted union leaders for obstructing a vital industry during wartime, even though the war had been over for six months. By May, the strike was lost and the union busted. It would take another 20 years before Kansas City Transit would finally be organized. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So Thursday, Yellow Freight or the the people overseeing the bankruptcy rejected an offer that would have put thousands of workers back to work. And now you what you've got are, you know, the first round of vultures picking at the carcass of what had been the livelihoods of thousands of men and women and their families. Uh, there's still maybe a glimmer of hope. Uh, as the group whose offer was rejected has once again stepped to the plate and offered another solution to getting these folks back to work, another opportunity to create good family-sustaining wage jobs. And here to talk about these developments, I've asked Sarah Riggs Amico to come talk with us. Uh, Sarah is the executive chair at auto carrier Jack Cooper Transport, also part of New Century Logistics. Sarah, thanks for taking time for us. Absolutely. It's good to be with you, Rick. So walk me through what happened on Thursday. Uh, I, I know you guys made an offer. Uh, it was a big offer. It was an offer to, to pull this company back into operation, out of bankruptcy. As I understand, the filing should have moved towards. What happened? Yeah, so we, um, we made an offer to the debtor to buy substantially all the assets of what was once Yellow Corp. And that offer was comprised of $1.1 billion term loan, um, $1.5 billion of preferred equity, um, specifically targeted to the unsecured creditors. So the pension funds that lost out here, you know, they're, um, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp, the priority claims for employees, the trade creditors, and that preferred equity would, would have paid a dividend um, of 7%, which is uh, top of the market if you look at fixed dividend uh, listings on NASDAQ for this instrument. And in addition to that, we were seeking uh, to satisfy the CARES Act loans for the U.S. Treasury with the issuance of new debt to the tune of um, about $740, $750 million. So when you put all of that together, it, it was actually quite a robust offer. Um, you know, they as a company had to continue through their auction process. And we certainly understand of the 169 terminals that were owned by Yellow, they did sell all but about 46 or they not sell. Technically, the sell hearing is the 12th, which is Tuesday, but they accepted best and highest offers 
on all but 46 of the terminals that they owned, which means, uh, and they were able to procure about $1.8 billion, $1.88 billion in bids for those. So um, they're, what they're betting on in rejecting our offer is that the rolling stock assets, which they have not sold the vast majority of or are really any meaningful part of, and the remaining 46 terminals and various and sundry other licenses, contracts, or assets would top our bid. But I think more to the point, our bid wasn't entirely composed of cash, right? Um, so we understand that they had to do that, but the fact remains there are 100 lease terminals that are left. There are 46 terminal properties that they own. There's still a lot of the IT infrastructure. And, and of course, um, there are still the unsecured creditors who are the people that get anything over and above what clears the debt and the fees to exit bankruptcy. Um, the equity holders, of course, up until this point, they really haven't had any hope of recovery in this process, including the 30% of yellow that was owned by the U.S. Treasury. And so what we've done is we've gone back and said, look, what if there's a Goldilocks solution here right. because again our, our motivation was 28,000 people lost their jobs when yellow closed its doors our offer would have put at least 15,000 of them back to work in the first two years we thought that was um, an incredible outcome vis-a-vis -vis liquidating the company which means none of those jobs ever come back and and certainly uh, is, a, is a major blow to unionized trucking writ large as well not to mention consumers from a price perspective and the supply chain. But why don't we see if there's a Goldilocks solution? Why don't we see if we can present an offer that might still put 15,000 people back to work, uh, might be slightly pared down, but using those remaining 46 terminals, the leased terminals, and again, the other assets, whether that's forklifts and rolling stock, IT licenses. But the reality is, um, we're not giving up yet because there are still thousands and thousands of jobs that can be saved. And yeah. so we have redoubled our efforts, um, have presented to the unsecured creditors um, our thoughts on this because we know that, that they're going to be heavily impacted by it. Um, those, those conversations are protected uh, by NDA, so I can't go into details. Of course they but are. We, <laughs> but, but we intend to present to the company uh, sort of a plan B, which says, look, you can keep the the money from your auction. We understand that you've got to clear the debt. Um, we understand also that there's no such thing as a successful outcome that doesn't include people going back to work. And I agree. so let us have a chance to come no. in and buy the remaining assets. And that, that's great. But here's the thing, you know, all the, all the news that's out there, all the stories are uh, that your initial offer wasn't accepted because it was, you know, rosy, rosy outcomes uh, on one end and uh, lack of funding on the other. And it wasn't, you know, a, a big offer. It was a billion dollars. It, it's a yeah. lot more than that. And, and I got to tell you, I've known you for years. I don't see you as someone who goes into something, into a business deal with with rose colored glasses on thinking that, you know, things are going to be greener on the other side. I see you as someone who gets the numbers. So to hear the, the news media say, Saying, well, you know, um, their projections were way off. I I'm not buying it. Yeah, no. By the way, um, first of all, uh, I'm not sure that the the presentation of the bid was accurate. It was not a billion dollar bid. Uh, the math is pretty straightforward. It was 1.1 in debt, 
it was one and a half billion. So right, we're already to 2.6 billion for everybody out there who likes math um, in preferred equity. And then it was the 740 extension of the US Treasury loan on top of that. So um, it, this was a bid that brought over $3 billion in value to the estate, but we, but again, wasn't an entirely cash-based bid, and we certainly understand that. No, no, but uh, I get this, and this is the, my frustration: is if we were a country who gave our tinkers damn about working people and not feeding the corporate vultures, uh, this this whole thing would have gone a little bit differently. And I, and I, I know we are where we are, and and now you know this is over; it's the past, so to speak, or is it? I mean, is there a chance? Uh, of any type of, hey, there was some malfeasance here. There are some shady dealings going on here. Is there anything that possibly could 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 overturn the apple cart at this moment before they finally sell off all the things that are there that you haven't bid on yet? Yeah, look, I think it's it's what we're trying to do now. It's a plan B, or I don't like plan B because it presumes it's not optimal. I like the idea of calling it Goldilocks. You know, it's just right. They get their cash from the real estate auction. And we get the rolling stock and remaining terminals and other assets, and we'll put in a bid that we think will maximize value to the estate. Right, but Sarah, here's the thing: I mean, fifteen thousand people back to work. I'm right? with you. I'm I'm a hundred percent there. But you know, they they just cherry picked probably the the best locations, the best you know, uh, the best terminals that you know, the best value that you could have gotten for this, which will put anybody wanting to bring this company back from the dead in in a real in a real bind. We certainly haven't made it easier, but the reality is, you know, independent of how our business plan going forward was presented, it was put together with literally dozens of LTL and logistics experts, um, including, you know, about a dozen or so current and former yellow executives up until the time of the bankruptcy filing who have as much as 40 years of experience at yellow. So these were business plans that were very carefully crafted. Um, and by the way, we've had customers from Yellow who've reached out to us. We can't engage with them right now because of our NDA with the sure. sellers, obviously, but but they're reaching out. And these are marquee names that your listeners would know the brands saying we either haven't found capacity at the price we want or we haven't found service we're happy with. And we'd love to see Yellow come back. So I, I'm not sure. Look, it, it's a pared down version what we could do from here. But it's still a good network. If you think about the number of lease terminals, I think they had 100 or 120 leased terminals, and there are still the 46 remaining. Um, that's bigger than the network as we contemplated it in our first offer. So there's certainly room to maneuver. And we're also willing, of course, to say, look, if there are particular terminals they think are just going to catch such an enormous price, um, fine, leave those with the estate and, and we'll deal with what there is. What we're trying to eliminate is the excuse not to put people back to work. Right. No, this is this to me is 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 Sorry. No, no, I, <laughs> I get it. You, I I look, you're you're fighting the good fight and uh you know this to me is one of these moments where I'm pulling for you. I'm pulling for the workers. I'm pulling for the people that I know who've lost these jobs, who are struggling to to, to find new jobs. Uh the stories that I've been I've been getting you know, just heartbreaking. And look, you know, there's the reality. And I know we've known each other for quite some time. This could have been me had I stayed uh, working at, at YRC, you know, back in 2010. 
Uh, this, these are friends of mine who have lost jobs. So I am pulling for you and everyone else in this scenario. But for me, the, the frustrating part of this, Sarah, is it's our legal system that continues to do this kind of stuff. Because look, Yellow was what, a $5.3 billion company before they, yeah. they decided to up and eh, we're closing the doors because we think we can get more money on the, on, the, on the open market to sell stuff off. There's something wrong with that thinking. Yeah, look, I think in the end, the company going forward will have to make a choice, which is, do you want that to be the last impression that everyone has? Do you want those families who haven't found jobs? And we know that, you know, between 12 and 15,000 of the Teamsters who were at Yellow still have not found work. We know that many of the others have taken a pay cut. They're not in health, welfare, pension jobs. Um, and we know that customers have taken double digit price increases and that's not me saying it, go watch the CEO of some of the non-union competitors when they announced their earnings last quarter saying right. the same thing. So, you know, the choice is the story can end like that or the company can work with us to try to create the best outcome for all stakeholders, which includes most importantly, um, at this point, I think that the workers, tens of thousands of people who lost their jobs. So we, we are, as you know, because we've known each other for a while, we're not giving up. Um, this, this has been a process that was a worthy cause. We presented with very sophisticated financial backers and lenders a very high dollar bid for the company, and they took a different path, and that's okay. But now... We're saying whatever is left, we'd like a chance to bid on those and put 15,000 people back to work. And I think that's also a very worthy effort. And until the gavel goes down and cuts off all of my options, we will be in there giving a voice um, to the families that need it this holiday. And how do we help you? Yeah, look, I think right now people have reached out from when I was on last time telling us about what it's been like if they've lost their job at yellow or if someone in their family has please keep sharing those stories we are collecting all of those and and at the right moment we're prepared to share what this looks like in a, in a very human way um it, look if you know uh, an investor if you're a fund or listening and you want to come in with this new um, syndicate of investors that we're putting together to try to take the remaining assets and spin up a pared down going concern um, let us know. And and most importantly, I think, continue to speak up. There, there is a lot at stake here, uh, not just for this individual company, but a lot of your listeners understand what's really going on here, which is, you know, the result of the auction last week was probably the biggest win for non-union trucking since the Reagan administration. And I don't say that as a positive thing. Um, I think there's still a place for union trucking, and I personally believe in creating the kind of jobs that uh, a family can provide for their own, um, that can put their kids through school, that can buy a home, that can have the American dream. What we do in union trucking matters, and it matters that we fight for that um, in every circumstance, including this one. Sarah, I, I got to tell you, I, I'm in awe of you. I always am. I think what you're doing is incredible. I, I'm wishing you the best, and I'm hoping everyone, everyone, whether you're a yellow employer or roadway employer or New Penn or Holland or any of them, uh, I hope everyone reaches out, and I hope folks call their representatives and and, and get 
angry about this because we need to be talking about how we save jobs, not make rich people richer. But, Sarah, I appreciate the, the work you're doing and you taking time for us. Uh, I'm looking forward to good news. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come here and tell folks about what we're doing, Rick, and for all of your support. Thanks so much, Sarah Rigsamico, Executive Chair of the Auto Carrier Jack Cooper Transport. And I got to tell you, I, you, call your representative early, often. This is important. This is a this is a big deal. I got to take a quick break. Right back with your thoughts. Stick around. You're listening to the Rick Smith Show. We're working people. Come to talk. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So I got to tell you, it's infuriating when you look at the fact that, again, what you have is a scenario where working people, again, are going to take it on the chin. And and understand, this isn't new, uh, but this is, again, the next in the latest line. And as I was doing some research and reading uh, some articles on this this topic. I came across a guy who was quoted, and I think it was the MSNBC article. Uh, his, his name is Bradley Maroon. Uh, he is the assistant director of Hamrick Trucking Truck Driving School in Ohio. They're like the big uh, truck driving school in in the Cleveland area where I was at, at across Ohio. And and his quote in in this in this article was quite amazing. He said, yellow trucking offered competitive pay and a stable, safe job for new truckers, said Bradley Maroon, assistant director, uh, says the union jobs at yellow offered new truckers protection and advocacy. He said, quote, and yellow was the only trucking company I know of where the truckers never had to sleep in their trucks. They would always put them up in a hotel which is a pretty big thing. And this is what I've said for years. Look, I was on the road for years working for Roadway and Yellow, YRC, all of that. And and I always said, look, I, I was never going to sleep in a truck. I was My bed's on the ground. Uh, here's the other part of this, though. What he doesn't talk about is the fact that, you know, look, you've got the guys you know who are living in their trucks uh, on the road, and that's, that's, that's their house. Uh, that's, their, that's their lively, that's their life. Uh, I know guys in day cabs working for non-union companies sleeping in day cabs because, well, they, they need to ex- make the extra 30 or $40 that they would have gotten to work to stay in the hotel because that's how poorly they're paid. When a company like this goes under, when a company like this goes away, what happens is the conditions get worse, and they're going to get worse. The unions raised conditions up took truck driving from being, well, a poverty wage, desperation wage job to being one that was really solidly middle class to now reverting back to desperation. And this, this again, this is a story that, that's been told 
time and time again. Uh, things get better. Corporate America says enough already. We want our money back. We want our power back. We want our control back. Things get worse. Uh, my hope is, is that Sarah and her group can bring yellow back out of the ashes. But will it be, you know, the, the company that it was? Will it be the third largest company in the country? No, no, those, those days are sadly gone for now. But giving those workers the opportunity at the dignity and respect that that job gave them with a contract that protects, protects them. The part that this guy talks about is the protection that working people have by being able to say, no, I'm not going to take a, a broken truck down the road. No, I'm not going to allow. I'm not going to allow this to happen. I got to tell you, we got we got so much work to do in this country. So much work at protecting working people. So much work at protecting families. If you got a story, I want to hear it. You should be calling your congressman. And I know this isn't this isn't this is an important issue to everyone, but it should be. It's a working people's issue. Uh, for those watching on television, this is the end of today's broadcast. For everybody on the radio, uh, we're going to take a quick break and back with more thoughts on this. Email me, Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2012. That was the day that Michigan Governor Rick Snyder signed right-to-work legislation into law. The birthplace of the United Auto Workers Union had just become the 24th state to pass legislation that guaranteed the open shop and the prohibition of mandatory dues collection. More than 10,000 trade unionists gathered in Lansing that day to express their their outrage. The only source of income that unions have is their dues base. Without it, unions can't adequately represent their members. Work of unions isn't just about effectively negotiating a contract. It also includes fighting contract violations, excessive discipline and wrongful discharges, and enforcing safety and good working conditions on the job. All of this suffers under right to work. But this is nothing new. Right to work laws have their roots in fighting the Wagner Act, and the CIO organizing drives throughout the South in the 1940s. The Texas billionaire and lobbyist Vance Muse fought hard against child labor laws, the eight-hour day, and even the right for striking workers to picket. Pro-segregationist Democrats, cotton brokers, Fred Koch, the DuPont brothers, Gerald Sloan of General Motors, and others supported him in his efforts. His organization, the Christian American Association, was closely aligned with the Ku Klux Klan. Muse argued that segregation could only be maintained by enforcing the open shop. Otherwise, whites would be forced to interact with blacks. He said, quote, from now on, white women and white men will be forced into organizations with black African apes whom they will have to call brothers or lose their jobs. The wealth class has spent millions of dollars over 60 years to defeat working people and reverse hard-fought gains. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. In a song about outlaws, Woody Guthrie noted that some will rob you with a six-gun, some with a fountain pen. Indeed, the big money thievery in our society today is being perpetrated by the fountain pen gang of corporate monopolists, Wall Street financiers, and Washington lobbyists. They're trying to pull off another multi-billion dollar heist right now in the airline industry. 
It's a merger caper that would gouge consumers, shortchange airline workers, and cut service to communities by further shrinking competition in an already monopolistic market. Just four giants, American, United, Delta, and Southwest, now control two-thirds of all air travel in the entire U.S. The only competitive force left is a handful of smaller lines, such as JetBlue, Spirit, Alaska, and Hawaiian. Currently, though, Alaska and JetBlue are trying to take over the other two, perversely arguing that cutting the number of competitors will miraculously increase competition and magically reduce prices for consumers. This is what I call Santa Claus economics. You have to be six years old to believe it. Here, boys and girls, is the reason that less competition is not more. All of these airlines are owned and controlled by the same tiny group of uber-rich Wall Street financial profiteers. For example, Vanguard Group, a $7 trillion global investment powerhouse, is the largest institutional shareholder in American, United, Delta, Southwest, and Alaska, plus the second largest in JetBlue. So far from fighting the big four, the two monopolistic wannabes would join them to rig prices even higher and make airline service more of an oxymoron than it is now. This is Jim Hightower saying, the word free and free enterprise is not an adjective, it's a verb. We have to free up the enterprising competitors, decentralizing market power, not increasing consolidation. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. Uh, so these Sunday shows were full of talking heads and, well, fun, entertainment, and uh, some, some bizarre stuff like uh, J.D. Vance. Uh, the senator from Ohio was on with Jake Tapper and the State of the Union. Uh, and, and, and what I found interesting is he, he believes that uh, what's in our country's best interest is that we just accept the fact that Ukraine's going to have to give up some land to Russia. Uh, you know, just going to have to give it up. Just gonna, it, yeah, you know, it's over. It's done. We're going to have to give that. Oh, and by the way, uh, we're going to allow uh, Cash Patel and the Klan to to go after media people because I guess we have to investigate media bias, which is just, well, I'm not quite sure how you get there. And here to share some thoughts on, well, what that might look like, I've asked our good friend, former Ohio congressman and political analyst Bob Nay to come share some thoughts. Bob, thanks for taking time for us. Well, thank you, Rick. So what do you, what do you make of your senator, J.D. Vance, uh, saying, let's start with the Russia thing first. You know, it's, it's just in the country's best interest, Bob. We can't keep spending the money. Just going to have to, you know, just going to have to give Russia some land. That's it. They're just going to take a well, little bit, not too much, but just going to mm-hmm. have to give up. Well, Rick, he's trying to walk a line, too, because, I mean, can you say J.D. Vance, uh, vice president of the United States? <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> well, in his mind, hey, now, of course, to be bipartisan about this, every senator in the morning, when they brush their teeth and look in the mirror, see the future president of the United States. Oh, yeah. All right. So <laughs> let's be fair. But but, uh, you know, he's got ambitions, I think, you know, with and he's trying to kind of follow the, the line between not riding the Utre- Ukraine off, but doing what, you know, Trump wants on it. So he's opposed to sending more aid to the Ukraine. Uh, but then he says, you know, why are we going to send billions uh, considering that the previous aid didn't end the war, which I'm thinking, okay, let's see. You know, if we took that theory that spending money in World War II didn't end the war after nine months, maybe we would, you know, be speaking German today. I don't know. But his logic, he's trying to find some type of way, you know, in between this. 
and uh, that's his way by saying, well, we're going to have to, you know, seed some land, and therefore we're going to quit. Now, <clears throat> logic kind of tells you, Rick, at least my strategy, and I think yours because you're a smart guy, my strategy would be to say that, you know, if I actually believe this about the land, would say we're going to continue to fund the Ukraine, forcing Russia to make, you know, some kind of deal versus, well, we're going to stop funding you. Uh, hey, uh, they're powerless now, Putin. Go ahead and make your deal. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. It Doesn't makes make sense. no sense. And, and None. And and how much? I mean, are we talking, you know, a little bit around the edges? Or are we talking all of it? Because I got to tell you, I don't think Putin's going to stop at just a little bit. And this is my problem with all of this. And maybe it's just that I grew up at the era I grew up and not trusting Russians. Um, but when, when, where do they stop? When do they stop? Or does this escalate? further down the road and we end up getting in a worse scenario down the road well yes and i think in fact part of our problem ours meaning the nato coalition and the united states not just a single us out was that we should have we you nato should have made a instituted a no-fly zone when this thing began now we were worried some plane might get shot down. I fully understand that. That doesn't mean we go into a nuclear war with each other. But a no-fly zone would have changed the whole dramatics and complexion of this entire Ukraine-Russia situation. So we didn't do that, so we funded money. Uh, but I, you know, I think in the beginning, had we done that, it, it might have you know, made a difference. Uh, but now, you know, because we haven't taken certain steps or because the – the war is still continuing doesn't mean you just say, oh, that's it. Again, strategy-wise, who on earth would say to your opponent, um, we're going to quit fighting you. How about we sit down and make a deal? <laughs> you, you don't do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm defenseless now. I'm helpless now. Oh, yeah. please, let's make a deal. Yeah, you're in a street fight. And you put your hands behind your back and say, okay, um, here, you know, I, I want to end this now. You're going to get hit a couple times before you even sit down. Yeah. Now, now Zelensky, I guess, is coming to the U.S. to try and right. try and you know salvage something, right? Right, and I think from Zelensky's point of view, he has to do that because obviously there are some divisions within the Republican circles uh, weakening. Uh, J.D. Vance is not the only one, although he's the one of the few that's saying give them territory, but it's just weakening in the position of. Some, the Ukraine, and on top of it, with the whole Israel-Hamas uh, war and the money going out there, obviously, let's face it, Ukraine's taking a back seat. Uh, so people will be out front. Yes, let's lock in support for Israel, but then comes the Ukraine, which is now the secondary uh, source of, of a lot of interest for the United States. And obviously, Zelensky is going to meet with uh, with senators from both parties. Yes. And and I understand Mike Johnson, the speaker, is going to meet with him. Yes, yes. I'm. I I can't imagine Zelensky coming to the United States and anybody from you know what I call the Big Four. You know, two in the House and two in the Senate leaders and minority leaders. I can't imagine anybody not meeting with him. It would be a Huge mistake. I don't care what anybody in their caucus thinks. So yeah, Johnson will meet with him. Yeah, because my mind goes to, to Marjorie three names and the craziness that would come out of her. And I'm, I mean, this is this is the weird thing. You know, I used to have faith in our, in people who would put at some level put the interest of the country first. Uh, this I see this as one of those things. 
I see this as this should be nonpartisan. We should, I mean, there are arguments to be had, but this, this to me seems very germane to our interests in that if, if, Putin does get to roll through Ukraine and does get to have access to the the breadbasket of Europe and and the the energy that comes through there and all of that. I don't know how that's good for geopolitically. I don't know how it's good for us. Well, that you're right. And also, what doesn't add up? Where are the old days where the conservative Republicans and the neocons, in particular, of course, but the conservative Republicans themselves would have been uh, no. Putin, you're not going to gain this this leverage. Where where are those days? Marjorie Taylor, three names should be the first yeah. to be up there saying we got to fight Putin. Let me ask he you a dumb question. First. It's changed, and I know why. Okay, now I got to know why because I was going to ask the dumb question: Is this just a red hat, blue hat thing where you know Biden's to picked one side, so the the Republicans have to be on the other, uh, or is it deeper than this? I think when Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, and, and some others, you know, it's a it's a Trump thing. Mm. It's Donald Trump, and and it's wanting to, you know, follow that line. A uh, Donald Trump Jr. in a in a Newsweek article said Ukraine already lost the war. Now, you know where this goes to. It goes to, hey, I'm Donald Trump. Had you put me in office, guess what? This wouldn't have happened. Ukraine wouldn't have been attacked in the first place. That's that's where this goes. So if you're Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, you're going to probably uh, want this not to work because Joe Biden's president and Donald Trump had been there. This wouldn't have happened. So you really kind of maybe don't want it all yeah. pieced together. I think that's where she comes from. Yeah, that, I really do. Because what doesn't make sense are conservatives in any fashion or form yielding to the Russians and Putin. Well, the the argument that I've heard for conservatives to side with Putin is uh, he's anti-gay, he's anti-immigrant, he's anti he's anti all the th- same things that they are. So they're on that same page and pushing the whole kind of theocratic mindset that kind of where Mike Johnson might be in in favor of some of this stuff. Um, and and that's the argument that I've heard for conservatives. Yeah, I mean, I it might be deep in their mind part of it, but I think it's more that Trump took the lead. Donald Trump Jr. says, hey, you know, they've lost the war. Trump takes the lead. Had he been there, it had been different. He'd have done the better deal. It would have been a beautiful deal, you know? And so I think they're they're falling in line to humor Trump. Yeah, it's Uh, red hat. I I think, yeah, it's automatic falling in line. There you go, you know? Uh, The other thing that uh, J.D. Vance talked about, you know, this idea of of going after the collusion between the media and big tech. Uh, this is kind of scary stuff, especially from a party that's saying, you know, Joe Biden's weaponizing government. They're actually, what they're talking about is the weaponization of government. They're going to go after one of the protected industries under our constitution, the press. Uh, this, this should, this should be freaking people out a little bit more than it, than it, it is, I think. No. Yes. And also, uh, of course, you know, you're talking to somebody who was one of three people with Ron Paul, Butch Otter, and myself, one of three who voted against the Patriot Act on the Republican side, right? And the reason I voted against the Patriot Act is I knew the government, and it will do this under multiple administrations, it'll do, under Bush, Obama, et cetera, 
where you have elements within the government that will get the permission to you know, look into things. Now, it depends who's the president, who's the head of the NSA, who's the head of the CIA. I understand that. But if you think about what J.D. Vance is saying and you think about a, a new presidency in 2024, then the powers to be within the government will become a weapon because they will be able to say, all right, you know, J.D. Vance and others have said there's collusion between the press, tech companies, and America's national security app- apparatus. So they need to start looking into emails, conversations. It, it will be it will be legitimately okay to wiretap people, just as it has been, just as I argued when I voted against the Patriot Act. And if anybody thinks there's a FISA court that's going to protect people, no. So we're going out. We're going down now. Publicly, you know, at least people, Rick, they used to keep these thoughts secret, right? Yeah. And just do it. But now you're seeing people out front like J.D. Vance and others saying this. And I guess the point I'd make on it is who is the censure god that now sits there and says, well, what NBC did is illegal and we're going to go after But what Fox did is okay. You know, who, who sits and makes that decision? It's a dangerous path. Pretty soon, you're not going to be able to say anything about anything, period. Yeah, and especially when you're talking about, you know, just starting locking people up, especially when you got somebody like Trump uh, who's been saying it's all about payback, it's all about retribution. Uh, we're going to, you know, they're going <laughs> to. I mean, it's it's Orwellian. It's. Uh, it's all the stuff that, you know, those those novels I read in high school that are now being banned. Uh, it's all of that stuff wrapped into one. Well, now, his one statement, it's not journalism to take your security clearance, lie to the American people, and then persuade big technology to censor anti-Joe Biden stories. I, I'm not sure where that all comes from. Well, I think it's the laptop. I think you know they're you know they 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 wanted that laptop story. That was supposed to be the October surprise. That was supposed to be everywhere. We were supposed to freak out over all the crimes. Uh, remember there because there were all these crimes. Uh, there were tons of crimes, and the the crimes were 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 much worse than anything Donald Trump could have done. Uh, therefore, that should have been the story, and and people didn't bite. Uh, you know, I didn't bite on the laptop story at all because I'm like. Okay, he's not running for office. I don't care what's on his laptop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Well, the only reason the the whole thing has become a story anyway is because uh, um, the lawyers, frankly, uh, <laughs> blew up the plea deal and with yeah. the nuclear bombing court. No, that's, that's it. I mean, look, if he broke the law, he should go to jail like anybody else. If there is a, if there is a direct link between his crimes or whatever he did or whatever is being accused. And Joe Biden, and there's a quid pro quo. Then yes, we we follow that. But to this point, there's been nothing. In fact, Mitch, Mitt Romney was on, uh, what was it? Uh, Meet the depressed, uh, and uh, he on the Biden impeachment because I guess we're going to keep doing that. He says I don't see any evidence of of that at all. I think before you begin an impeachment inquiry, you ought to have some evidence, some inclination that there's been wrongdoing, and so far there's nothing of that nature. And, you know, you, this is Mitt Romney who, you know, I, I see him as sort of in this moment, the middle of the road, which is frightening to me. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is there's nothing there. 
Right. Well, um, Mitt Romney said uh, Trump was the human gumball yeah. machine, <laughs> and he'll impose his will upon the nation, which I thought was very interesting what he said on the on the Sunday shows. But he says his behavior, this is Romney, that Trump's behavior suggests that this is a person who will impose his will if he can on the judicial system. And, of course, uh, remember, Trump had talked about shutting down the government to the House colleagues in order to uh, go after the Justice Department that's going after him. Yeah. And he did that publicly. So, yeah. again, it, it, he said it publicly. I do find it interesting that, that Romney wouldn't – he didn't say he wouldn't vote for Joe Biden, uh, but he, he, he said he wants Joe Manchin. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of pushing that out there. And I think Manchin would be a horrible choice. Uh, but, you know, you got Ma- And I think if Manchin were to run, I think it would ensure that Donald Trump would win. Well, we have the weirdest dynamics you know, going on now, of course. Uh, I'm looking at Manchin, who's now not running, as we know, for the Senate. I'm, I'm thinking, Joe Manchin, what does... I'll throw this out here. What does he have to lose by running on the no labels ticket? Nothing. I mean, think about it. He has not. In fact, what he has to gain is he runs on the no labels ticket. You got RFK in there running. You've got you know a, a couple of other people who would be no names, but they will count if they get one percent of the vote. They will count on this election for or against Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Yeah. This is this is all the biggest mismatch. <laughs> of percentages that I think we will see in in modern presidential history. For Manchin's case, though, he runs, you know, says all these things that are, you know, bipartisan. And when it's over with, uh, he doesn't win. But, uh, hey, there'll be a great think tank job somewhere for him. (laughs) It'll pay well. That is true. It'll pay well. Because someone asked me, you know, why hasn't he ruled it out? I said, look, he's I'm sure he's playing the. You know the you know the the court me game, where money's coming in. There's 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 some some sweeteners going into a super pack somewhere. I'm sure he's going to line his pockets in this, but ultimately you're right. I mean it's going to be an interesting year, but I don't see, I, I don't see there being a chance for them to win. Only the only thing that no. they can do, is sway sure. the election one way or the other. And I see Manchin sure. as a guy, who would take votes from Biden, um, and in states that are really important like Pennsylvania. Right, and then you've got RFK, who they announced uh, uh, yesterday in a news story uh, that he is uh, going to cough up, or this PAC or some group is going to cough up $15 million to get him on ballots in states. I'll tell you what, for $15 million, you can get a lot of people out there getting a lot of signatures. Yeah. So uh, that's that's a reality, whereas with no labels, they have a – you know, a group that they can go and, and start to tap into to get signatures. So, yes, that's a possibility, too, with RFK. No, I got to tell you, I'd like to I'd like to know where the money's coming from. Where's the 15 million coming oh. from? Oh, no, no. John, John McCain, he, he went after that that dirty, soft money from uh, the system. He went after that. Uh, all he did do, though, is he forgot to uh, include in his campaign finance reform bill that anybody who gives a dime ought to have their name out there. To any group, yeah. I don't care who it is, you know, left or right, Koch brothers or Soros, you give you give a dime, put your name out there. We have no idea who are funding these groups. No labels, 
uh, any of these groups. You, ha- I mean, you have no idea. It could be people, you know, within the Trump organization or people to the left or the right. I, I don't know. It could be companies that that have foreign contacts in China. Who knows? No, and that's the scary part of this. And you go, um, I'm a big supporter of publicly funded elections. In fact, I just I just today had a conversation with a guy who said, you should run for you should run for Congress, Rick. You should run for office. And I go, give me a million dollars and I will. Uh, because that's what you need to be able to do to run an effective campaign uh, for just you know a small congressional seat here in, in central Pennsylvania. You need at least a million dollars. And what working person can raise that kind of money? Well, right. I, I had a phone call uh, a week ago. My congressman went on to a job in, in Youngstown, and I had a phone call, and they said, look, uh, normally you need, they said, 800000 It's a It's a election where the primary decides it, and it's going to be decided in March. They said, but in your case, with the name ID, even though you got in trouble, you're okay, you only need 200000 <laughs> They said, can you raise $200,000 in, in, uh, you know, in a week? And I said, well, first of all, I don't know if I want to, <laughs> I want to run it up, but see, the old days, yeah, you do a fundraiser, you raise some money, but can you imagine that? Okay. You need two hundred thousand just just to begin, yeah. just just to start a campaign. The, the old days are gone, where you had a chance, like I did in nineteen eighty, with no money, to run against a former congressman and go knock on doors, and I barely beat him, but I beat him with with you know no money. With duct tape Those and hustle. Those days are gone. Yeah, yeah. shoe yep, shoe polish and <laughs> new pair of shoes here and there, and there you go. It worked. Yeah, and I said, look, you know, until we get publicly funded elections and we get corporate money and this billionaire money mm-hmm. out of it and all these, all these super PACs and all this stuff, until we start breaking that stuff up, uh, it, it's it's sadly a done game because, like you said, we don't know who's funding all of this stuff. Could be the same guy. Could be Sheldon Adelson's estate for all I know, or a Koch brother, or you know, Tom right. Steyer on the other side, uh, whom I've heard almost know. nothing from uh, in this in this last electoral cycle. Mm-hmm. I think he's just mm-hmm. off doing his thing, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's well. Uh, I, I'm I'm concerned about what happens next November. <laughs> it's that that simple. Right. But, but Bob, I appreciate the time as always. Wonderful stuff. Look for, and hey, if you do run for Congress, I will write you the first the well, first campaign check. I I thought about it, Rick. If I ran, I thought the greatest thing I could do, if I won, is I make you chief of staff, <laughs> and and. We would enjoy two years in office because both sides would probably spend a million bucks against us. But we'd have a great two years. That would, yeah. And I would take that. I would uh, most yes, certainly sir. without question. Uh, good stuff, Bob. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Oh. Our good friend, Bob Nay. Look, I, I'm telling you, I would without question. Uh, I would I would love to see Bob back in Congress. Uh, we need san- sanity. We need rational thought. Uh, we need somebody who you know gives a rat's behind about working people. I'll take a quick break right back. Stick around. You'll listen to The Rick Smith Show. We're working people. Come to talk. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1886. That was the day that black farmers formed the Colored Farmers Alliance and Cooperative Union in Houston County, Texas. The Southern Farmers Alliance would not allow black members. So African-American farmers decided to form their own organization. They elected two black men, J.J. Shuffer as their president and H.S. Spencer as their secretary. A white man, an ex-Confederate soldier, was chosen as the national spokesperson for the group. Organizers moved across the South. They organized around issues including higher crop prices, lower railroad rates, and other policies that would help the sharecroppers and small landowners. In 1890, the organization merged with the rival National Colored Alliance. It grew to a force of 1.2 million farmers. A weekly newspaper, the National Alliance, reported on the activities of the organization. One initiative was to set up exchanges at port cities such as Charleston, Mobile, and New Orleans. These exchanges allowed black farmers to purchase goods at fair prices. They also provided loans for black farmers. The Alliance advocated for black farmers to purchase land, a tough proposition in the sharecropping system of the South. In September of 1891, the Alliance called for a strike of cotton pickers, but the organization did not have the infrastructure to support such a massive effort. The strike never really got off the ground, and in Arkansas, 15 black strikers were killed. The oppressive discrimination that structured Southern agriculture made it exceedingly difficult for black farmers to organize. Oh, the farmer is the man, the farmer is the man, lives on credit till the fall. With the interest rate so high, it's a wonder he don't die. And the middleman's the one that gets it Like what it you all. hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So think about that for a minute. You know, during the break, I'm thinking about, you know, Bob running for Congress again and having someone who, quite frankly, has has seen the highs, the lows and everywhere in between uh, has has made you know lots of money and lost all of it has uh, has has a perspective on, on all ends. Isn't that somebody you would want in Congress? Isn't that somebody you would want in a position of power? to be able to ensure that everyone has a shot. I mean, this is what our government is supposed to be. It's supposed to be we, the people coming together, deciding on the things that we want, we need, uh, the hopes, the dreams of our future, all of that stuff, instead of just the circus that it's become. It's, you know, I've said for years, you know, politics is, is the new polo for the rich. Uh, you know, they, they hold gala events and they buy themselves access to, to representatives and, and policymakers and they get what they want. You know, and as this person, you know, asked me, you know, you know, why don't you run? And I've thought of it a number of times over the years. Because I think you do need passionate people uh, in in political office. I do believe you need people who who believe that government can and should do good and big things. I think you need people who want to help. And yet, a lot of, especially conservative Republicans, especially the, the, the ones who, who talk about how religious they are, 
It's all about restraining government. It's all about, you know, destroying programs and, and you know, giving everything over to the private sector, which is, which is weird. Because we know that everything we've privatized, everything we've handed off for, for, for profit gain has turned out worse for we the people. And as I was explaining to this guy today, you know, I was, and he, look, he was genuinely uh, questioning, you know, why, why haven't I run? And I said, look, you know, at the end of the day, the money is a big part of it. Uh, why should why should it cost a million dollars to run for a job that pays one hundred and seventy five thousand? You know, for president, why do you why is it going to cost a billion plus to run for a job that you know what what is it four hundred grand now? There's something wrong with this situation, and 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 we we as people we as as the uh, as the, the people of this country should demand better. The polling is absolute across the board. People are not happy with what they've been getting out of their government because their issues, their needs, their concerns are not being addressed. And this is where, you know, we, we can and should come back together. But it's got to come back. To, it's got to be the money. We got to get the money out of politics. That's issue one. Should be that simple. But how do you do it? I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. If you got any thoughts, I want to hear them. Anything I said today made you think, angry, happy, sad, by all means, shoot me an email, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Make sure you grab the podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, you'll find ours. Thanks for being here. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.